Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Dr. Jana, hello. Hi, Joe. Welcome to episode 48 of the Science of Sex podcast. 48, and we're recording this on my birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Are you 40 yet? I'm not 48 or 40 yet. <laughs> but who's <laughs> Slowly counting? Slowly getting there. Slowly getting there. Well, happy birthday, Dr. Jean. Thank you. Who is going to be our birthday boy guest today? <laughs> birthday boy guest is Dr. Menelaos Apostolou. Sounds Greek. Yeah, he's from, uh, the guy you told me about from Cyprus. He is from the University of Cyprus. Well, originally from Greece, but he's at the University of Cyprus. And he's going to be talking to us about some theories, evolutionary psych theories that he's uh, proposed and tried to test about why people, why men and women are into aggressive and humiliating sexual play or some of that domination submission stuff. Interesting. Stuff. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, it's funny when we get into evolutionary psych, it always seems like we tiptoe into a controversial era. I feel like that's oh, yeah. going to happen. Oh, and for this one, it's going to happen big time. Okay. Yeah, so cool. get ready for some not super politically correct ways of thinking okay. about why people want what they want in bed. All right, good to know. And uh, <laughs> this birthday girl keeping busy, not just with the Science X podcast, but you're going to be out and about, right? I will be out and about. Yes, my next event is on November 20th at the Bar Subject on the Lower East Side. Is this the Think and Drink? This is the Think and Drink series where we are doing science talks at bars, and I will be busting myths about the female orgasm and just female pleasure in general. So okay. come have a drink and uh, listen to some science sex myths. All right. Well, what, where can one get uh, information or tickets to this event? Oh, yeah. Tickets. Important things. So yeah. go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com and on the episode description, there will be a link to the website where you can buy tickets. So that is Think and Drink coming up, and this is episode 48, and it's brought to you by our friends from Lelo. Yes, it is indeed. And we begin to hit up a lot on social media because you're sort of making this an event. People want to know your favorite sex toys. So mm-hmm. you said you had four. <laughs> uh, you, last week you did number one. So what, what is your second favorite sex toy? Okay, second favorite Lelo sex toy is probably the Ina Wave. The Ina Wave is the rabbit type vibrator. Okay. Do you know what that means, Joe? Yes, it looks like a mean? rabbit. No, it does not look like a rabbit. <laughs> Try again. No, I know it's just a little vibrator, right? That's well, basically it's the not name just a little vibrator. There are lots of different vibrators. Some, right. some little, some not so little. Okay. Do you know what's no? I, no. Again, you why do you ask me about I, vibrators? I don't have a vibrator. I don't know. Doesn't your partner have a vibrator? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. I don't go through through her drawers. You don't know what it's like to be in a relationship. You keep you give space. You let people have their privacy. So no. But you can use vibrators with your partner together. This is all about highlighting your favorite no, sex toy. No, no, <laughs> I no. I don't know. I can, if, if, if I could share about sex toys, I'd be more than happy to. I cannot I cannot add anything to the Eno Wave discussion. Okay, so I think you really should get a vibrator for you and your partner okay. all right. to bring that in okay. into the game. I mean, after 20 years. Right, and you're suggesting the Eno Wave? Well, the Eno Wave, I don't know if I'm suggesting that for a couple's okay. vibrator. I have another another suggestion for a couple's vibrator. Oh, so maybe that's part three that's <laughs> of the series? Well, of, of the Lelo toys, the Tiani is the couple's vibrator. Okay, the Tiani. And yeah, yeah. But since, you know, I'm not a couple, I can't oh, use it. Oh, <laughs> Everyone's feeling sad for Dr. Shana. She doesn't have a boyfriend. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, so <laughs> you can use it with non-boyfriend okay, partners right. too. Right, so I mean, I, sure. I guess I could be using it, but for some reason, that's not my go-to. Okay, so that's that's not one of my top four. But for people who like to use these kinds of couple couple vibrators with partners, the Tiani is the one to go. So for you, Joe, for I would me, recommend that. The Tiani. Yes, the yeah. Tiani. For Dr. Jana, the InnoWave. Okay, and why the InnoWave? <laughs> the InnoWave is sort of a two-part, and all of Rabbit vibrators are like a two-part vibrator mm-hmm. that has one that has an internal portion that goes inside and stimulates, vibrates inside, so it has a motor in that longer portion. And let me guess, there's an outer portion <laughs> there's that an outer stimulates portion. the outer area, like the clitoris? The outside area of the clitoris. The internal portion stimulates the, the internal portion of the clitoris, because right. you know that the clitoris goes inside, sure, sure. too, right? Of course. Right? Everyone and so knows that. The G-spot and all that. Everyone knows that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so it has a handle, right, so that you can easily kind of hold it and move it if you want to or rock it back and forth or in and out, whatever, you, and uh, or just like hold it in place and play around with the different speeds. And so you get this dual stimulation of both your external clitoris and the internal area Workings, of yeah. Yeah, all the workings. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, so uh, I, I love that one. That's that's uh, kind of a, a all-in-one. Okay. So for Dr. Shana, who's lonely and doesn't have a partner, <laughs> she can just use the Eda Wave on her spare time, right, Dr. Shana? Uh, yes. And if you need to look that up, that's lelo.com, L-E-L-O.com, and look up the Eda Wave, Dr. Shana's second most popular yes. sex toy. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, second, but not as in less favorite than the number one. Right, we're they're not, not ranked. It. They're not ranked. Right, okay. They're all they're for different things depending on what you need it for. Right. So all the right. one that I talked about last time, that's when you only want external yeah. stimulation, and you're being lazy, and you don't want to put lube on the uh, on the vibrator because, okay. like the Eno Wave, if it goes inside, you kind of have to put lube. Lube it up a little bit. Yeah, and and you have to take. Take your clothes off, or it has to go under clothes. Whereas the the one that we talked about last time, the the lily, right? You, know, you can just like put it over your underwear, and it will it will do the the trick. So it really depends. And uh, all right, the, so the there's ones no that are, ranking. We're not ranking. We're not these, ranking. Them, but right. they are like a top four. So this yes, is in the top yes, four. This is number four. two. Yes, all right, my cool. top go to four once. And you can get your Layla orders if you want anything from Layla. You can get them for twenty percent off with our. Discount code SCIENCE. Cool. That's Lelo, L-E-L-O dot com. And you mentioned our website earlier, sciencesexpodcast.com, which is an easy way to catch up on all episodes, but also reach out to us and uh, send us a note or where the email is also info at sciencesexpodcast.com. And we do get notes and we like to read them from time to time. And there was one in particular, Dr. Jana, that caught your fancy and you want to bring it up on this week's episode. <laughs> yes, indeed. We got this email from a listener who brought up something about our episode with Wednesday Martin when we were talking about sort of the infidelity rates in women having risen over the past however many decades, right? Remember that? Yeah, she had the book Untrue, she very popular bestseller, book, uh-huh, yeah. Untrue. And and so this, uh, this listener writes, I was frustrated by the lack of rigor in the discussion and disappointed by the failure to make plain moral distinctions, most obviously between consensual and non-consensual non-monogamy. The guests continually lump together women who cheat with women who are openly non-monogamous in a mutually celebratory manner, and the interviewers fail to challenge her. There are few moral justifications for dishonesty, and I think your listeners deserved a better discussion. I think this is an important 
a distinction to make and point to raise that consensual non-monogamy, the people who are in these open relationships, poly yeah. relationships, swinging relationships, whatever, whatever version of open they have, they have a very different way of going about their sexual desires and and uh, making those sexual desires and interests come true than the people who are cheating on their partners. And there's clear moral distinction yeah. there that you know ideally nobody would be lying to anyone and everybody would be able to do the things that they want to do openly. But I think we didn't really make that distinction much during our conversation because the conversation really was about the desire. Yeah. And both of these are driven, both consensual non-monogamy and non-consensual non-monogamy are driven by the same set of desires around having partners other than your long-term partner. Right. Whether you're in an open relationship or in a closed relationship, for lack of a better word. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I think what the, what the book, what Wednesday Martin's book is about and really trying to understand is where are these desires that women have coming from? Mm -hmm. And not so much how are they making them happen right. in in practice. So it's more about the the origin. Mm -hmm. You know, is this evolutionarily are we less interested in these things than men are and why? And kind of finding the evidence from primatology, from anthropology and uh, psychology, sociology and so on to to suggest that, you know, women might not have had that much less interest in these things than than men did. Mm -hmm. They were just suppressing them more or they didn't have avenues to express them. And the reason why both cheating and consensual non-monogamy are being kind of lumped into the same, under the same umbrella in this case, is because both of them are indicators that women were finding ways or are finding ways to express these to desires. To get more than what they were already having. Regardless whether they were cheating or just in an open right. relationship, so right. I mean, I see the point that our listener made that we did not really, mm. but we, but like you mentioned as well, we really didn't get into the morality of the conversation, and we did speak to her for like an hour or so. So, and her book is <laughs> mm -hmm. is quite large, and and there, there was a lot we could get into. But no, thank you very much. We, we're we're open to any feedback, and and our listener here made a great point. So if you ever have a, uh, an issue with one of our interviews or something stupid that I may say or something, you know, Dr. John from time to time may say something stupid, but if you have something wrong with something she says, you know, you can reach out to us at any point uh, via the website or on social media. Uh, just search the Science Sex Podcast and you can get to us that way. So let's get going with episode number 48, Dr. Jana. Tell us about today's guest. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about kinky desires, kinky fantasies, specifically aggressive and humiliating desires and fantasies. Because you know how the, the kink umbrella is very broad. It can, it can incorporate lots of different things that don't necessarily fall under aggressive and humiliating. Like, I don't know, specific fetishes, like, yeah. I don't know, boot fetish or something like that, sure. or foot fetish that, that doesn't really fall under that. But our guest uh, has been looking specifically into humiliating and aggressive desires and fantasies and trying to find an evolutionary explanation for why men and women have these desires, both on the giving end and on the receiving end. So we've got him on the show to try and explain some of these uh, theories and, and how he's tried to test them. And he would be Dr. Menelaos Apostolo, 
currently an associate professor at the University of Nicosia in Cyprus. He's originally from Greece, born in Athens, and completed his postgraduate and graduate studies in the United Kingdom. And he's a pretty prolific researcher who's published in a number of peer-reviewed journals, also books and chapters in books in the area of evolutionary psychology. Dr. Menelaos Apostolo, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So t today we, we're going to talk about these unusual sexual desires. So when we talk about reproduction, right, we're usually talking about things like penetrative sex, you know, penis making it into the vagina right. and depositing sperm and making babies. And it you make of, it sound so romantic, Dr. Jana. It, yeah, you know, I'm a big romantic. Deposit that. <laughs> but, and, and that makes sense to think of in evolutionary terms, given, you know, the importance of that outcome. And, and so the desires around that should be under these evolutionary pressures. And so it, it totally makes sense. I think nobody would argue that that uh, there are, I mean, I'm sure some people would, mm -hmm. but a, a lot of people won't argue that there are some evolutionary bases to our general sexual desires and attractions and wanting to have sex, especially penetrative sex right. and enjoying sex and all that. But then there are some of these less common uh, sexual interest or sexy or kinky or fetishistic kind of um, interests and desires that in some way might not make sense uh, at, at, at first glance, right? First of all, let me, let me say something about not so common. Um, <laughs> however, in the study I did and the one we're going to discuss, apparently the interest was not a rare one. I would say about 70% or more of people indicated that uh, they had an interest in this kind of uh, acts and behavior. So uh, probably it's, it's not very unusual. It's probably something that most people like. The question here is that uh, what this kind of desires, these uh, preferences, why someone would like, let's say, to spit on someone, to slap someone during mm -hmm. sex, or to like to be slapped or uh, uh, treated aggressively. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, What's the reason? Probably that's what you're asking. Right, right. So, I mean, the, one way to approach that question of, you know, why are people into this, try to ask it from a, from an evolutionary uh, standpoint, if it makes evolutionary sense. But actually, let's let's take a step back before we get to some of these ex evolutionary explanations and, and, and set up the stage for exactly what are we talking about and then how common are these these interests that we're talking about. So your study looked at some aggressive and humiliating sexual acts. What we did is, is we did some interviews and uh, we and some open-ended questionnaires and we located a certain aggressive, if you wish, uh, uh, humiliating uh, sexual acts that people prefer uh, to do on their partners or their partners uh, to do on, on them. Mm -hmm. We picked 13 of these acts uh, the most, you know, frequently occurring things like my partner bites me, slaps me, treats me aggressively, humiliates me, and so we did an online study. We asked about uh, 1,000 men and women, Greek-speaking men and women, to indicate if they like these acts to be performed on them, and if they like these acts themselves to perform on their partners. So what we found here is that 70% or even a bit more uh, preferred uh, at least one of these 13 acts 
to be performed on self or to perform this act on the partner. Uh, I would say about 50%, about half of the people, prefer three of these acts to perform on partner or their partner to perform on them. That's pretty common. If, if, if you look at it, 50% of people saying at least three of these and 70% of people saying yes. at least one. So are Greek Cypriots particularly kinky? <laughs> uh, <laughs> good point. What what is going on there? Is it something well, about the you know the, the Turkish versus this. Greeks? You know there's there's some there's some kinkiness going on there that doesn't exist in the rest of the world. Or is this is this con- consistent with some prior data on some other samples? And it's not a personal question, Milanos. She's not curious just about you. She's <laughs> saying in general. He he might be one of the thirty uh, percent yeah, who yeah. who are not into any of this. The way I see it, that probably. The Greeks, because this was also uh, it had Greek-speaking participants in general. Uh, probably, I, I wouldn't say that we are very kinky. So I guess if if we are to replicate this in uh, the states or uh, uh, Britain or wherever, probably I would get even higher score. Americans are pretty religious and repressed right, yeah, too. So, that's... so maybe Germans, maybe the Germans, yeah. <laughs> or British, or the Brits. Well, yeah. the Brits. Yeah. They kind of have a different issue. They have a different it's issue. Not religious not, yeah. suppression. Yeah. <laughs> but also, we should know that this wasn't a, a representative sample, right? This was a convenience sample of, of Greeks. So they exactly. may have been particularly open-minded about answering some of these things or interested in answering these kinds of questions. Exactly. That's, that's another issue here. Uh, we're talking here about occurrence rather than prevalence in the population. If we are to adjust this into a, a representative sample, uh, probably the ratings would be different. However, given that uh, the sample was quite large, there was like a, uh, a lot of variation in terms of age, I don't expect many differences uh, when we get like a representative sample. All right, so Melanaus, we've talked about how kinky people have gotten, the, the, you've, you've thrown the numbers around, but what kinks were on that list? Give us, run down some of the kinks that people had to choose from. All right. Ties me, handcuffs me, pulls my hair, bites me, slaps me, treats me aggressively, uh, hits me, uh, humiliates me, spits on me, talks dirty to me, things like that. Okay. So, although, talk dirty to me is, is a little different from all the other ones, in my mind. In it's which sense, in, you would say? Uh, in, all right. In the sense that it's, it's a lot less sort of out of the norm for and let less it, it's not necessarily aggressive or humiliating right if, uh, if talking dirty can be just like oh i i really want to fuck you right now and yeah. that's not that's dirty talk but it's not dirty aggressive talk, but yeah. it's not aggressive and it's not humiliating right. I, I don't disagree however with you and we have reported this in the paper some people might not interpret this as uh, humiliating i i don't disagree with this mm-hmm. so it's, sometimes it might be a matter of interpretation yeah mm-hmm. So I don't disagree with this. Even though this particular set of items hasn't been replicated in other studies, what do we just kind of putting putting these findings into more general perspective in terms of some other samples from other countries, from Canada, from America? Can you give us some some general sense of what the percentages are of people being interested in similar types of kind of okay. aggressive, you know, and and uh, humiliating play? So there are different studies on, on this. First of all, they are not inclusive of different acts. Like I, I mean, they, they they approach things like if you like someone to inflict pain on you during sex, and that's it. And another issue uh, is that uh, these studies uh, measure 
if you have ever performed this act or, or your partner has performed any of this mm-hmm. act on you. But that's different from desire. Right. Depends, of course, on the kind of study, but I would say about 10 to 25% of people indicating uh, an involvement in kind of uh, acts like this. But we have to take into consideration, however, the way these studies were constructed. Right. But still, even if it is somewhere around the 30%, that's still still a lot. Mm-hmm. That's not so yeah. uncommon. If we talk exactly. about these, these interests and desires as uncommon or atypical sexual fantasies, uh, which is exactly how we talk about it, that's exactly how we name them in psychology, yes. right? Paraphilias, not a sort of atypical... Right. That, I, I believe that's totally wrong. It does, I mean, it doesn't make much of a sense, right? It's like saying that uh, here there is something wrong with uh, uh, 70% of people, right? Or that... Uh, well, I mean... Right? The... Like we got like recruited 1,000 people and uh, 700 of them, there was something wrong with them. <laughs> It's possible, it's possible, but highly unlikely. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily there's something wrong with them, but that that, that, that is atypical. And that's a, almost a purely statistical kind of term. And if you have something like 30, 50, 70% of people having something or wanting something, that's or being, not atypical. That, is, that cannot possibly be atypical. <laughs> By <laughs> definition, that is typical, I not totally atypical. Agree. I totally agree. <laughs> so what number would be atypical? 1%? Is that what, what would be? If, because I know you, Dr. John, are very anal with numbers. What would, <laughs> what would if it came back, is it, what would atypical read out to you in a survey? It depends on the researcher, but I would say that if I see something less than 5%, probably I would say it's something atypical, more rare. Okay. Right. If I see something more than, I don't know, 15%, probably it's something like common, right? Uh, to my interpretation, at least. Yeah, we had uh, Dr. Christian Joyal on the show. One of his papers was exactly that, trying to kind of define what are common versus a not uncommon right. sexual fantasies and interests. And yeah, I, th- I think it was something like the cutoff point was something like 5% or something like that. Sounds reasonable to me. Reasonable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... You know, we've been talking about these, whatever, atypical, which I don't think we should be calling them atypical. What's a better, what's a better term that is not that? That's a nice, that's a good suggestion. That's a good suggestion. (laughs) (laughs) I have to think about it more. Let's call them kinky. Let's call them for the time aggressive uh, sexual playlist. Right, right. Or, yeah, kinky or aggressive. Although kinky is is broader. Kinky, I think. It's broader. Probably aggressive and humiliating sexual play. Right. A desire for aggressive, humiliating sexual play would Right. Work, I think. Talking about sort of the innateness of some of these desires, especially the aggressive and, and humiliating desires, that's kind of uh, the the basis or or the driving force behind behind this study. And you, as an evolutionary psychologist, have uh, been thinking about kind of how can we explain why would some of these desires be innate? Why would these desires even exist in the exactly. human mind? And if they are in existence, especially if they're not that uncommon, and in fact, who knows, possibly even very common, then there has to be some sort of evolutionary benefit, right, to having those kinds of desires. And so in in your study, you try to come up with some potential theoretical explanations for why men might be into aggression and humiliation sexually on the dominant side, on the sort of the giving side, why they might be on the submissive or the receiving side, and then why, why women might be on either of those sides as well. So, so, so talk to us a little bit about this. One thing is to see that 
okay, that's something common that uh, exists, uh, but then uh, to try to make sense of it. And, and I guess the, the issue here is that some of these acts uh, appear to be harmful, right? So if I just like uh, uh, want to be slapped or uh, someone to hit me, this uh, looks also dangerous. Uh, so this right. It doesn't sound pleasant people. and yeah. It's a challenge for us to make sense of it. However, uh, I mean, if you start thinking in evolutionary terms, this is not so strange. So if you consider that most of these mechanisms that regulate sexuality, sexual attraction, desires, were shaped in a different context than the one we live here, right? Uh, so how was this context? I mean, if, if you see the, uh, the anthropological and historical record, appears what one common way or a typical if you wish way for men to gain access to women uh, was to, to form alliances fight other men get uh, their women as a spoils of war so uh, this kind of desire bypasses uh, female choice right so it's like uh, if you grab a woman and say you probably say no i don't want to have sex with you obviously uh, so this is a kind of way to bypass this it would make sense in an ancestral context. So this desire would enable men uh, to do so to get access uh, to women. Think about this aggression in general, like, like this kind of of trait, right? It has been selected because of this reason. If if men were not aggressive, they wouldn't be very successful in uh, in war and killing each other, right? So that's why we end up having high aggression, especially in men. Right. which also materializes in the, in, in, the, in the sexual domain. This explains the male desire for these acts. That is, men in, uh, have an innate desire for aggressive and humiliating uh, sex on the part. Joe, how does this all sound to you? Does it sound reasonable? Yeah, It does good. reasonable. It, I think it might be uh, the way Melanow says it with that soothing voice of his, but it, <laughs> it does. <laughs> it sounds reasonable. If I may sum- summarize the, the account... It goes that in our long evolutionary history, there's been a lot of war, a lot of conflict. Men were fighting each other. Usually it was men fighting men mm-hmm. and often over women. And then very often the women Good. that they would have, that the men would end up having access to were not willing participants. They would try to fight Good the men death. off. Right. And then if the, if the man kind of allowed that to be a successful fighting off, he wouldn't get laid. And right. he wouldn't make babies. So it was in his best evolutionary interest to overpower that uh, that resistance and maybe even like that resistance in a way, but certainly to have the to have the the ability to overpower and uh, provide this kind of aggressive and hum- humiliating uh, set of actions during that sexual it almost sounds like you're describing rape as an evolutionary act mm-hmm. uh, I know I, I, I suspect that doesn't sound very nice but but look look the idea here is that if men would gain access to women by force let's say by fight and this is not my interpretation this is like what it has been recorded in human yeah, history. history sure and even in archaeology before human history then yeah, the spoils if women were spoiled war or you know there was like or the purpose if you want uh, of some of these uh, wars while a woman assuming that a, a woman wouldn't like to have uh, sex with uh, uh, someone who has, who has captured her then if, if if a man wouldn't adopt kind of an aggressive uh, way then it wouldn't work really i mean the whole strategy of fighting other men over women 
wouldn't really work. So I, I, it doesn't sound very nice, but it's the same. It's the same reason why have evolved stronger muscles, more aggressive. I mean, these kind of traits enable them to fight effectively other men. Uh, so you know, I, I, I try not to to pass judgment. I just try to understand these aspects or these traits. Let's say. Yeah, I mean, and you're certainly not the only person to suggest that uh, some of these aggressive tendencies have in, in men have developed as a as a, as an evolutionary strategy in order to to survive and and reproduce and certainly there have been arguments around rape and the ability to rape as mm-hmm. as being uh, evolutionarily adaptive in certain circumstances now i think it's it certainly doesn't sound nice it doesn't sound politically correct right exactly right <laughs> but but uh, yeah. ultimately science is not in the service of political correctness science right. is in the sci- in, in the service of trying to figure out what the truth is and how things develop. Exactly. And I think it's really that's, important. That should be. That should be. I totally <laughs> right. agree. And right. uh, regarding rape, uh, I mean, if you see that uh, uh, during wars, for instance, uh, even recent wars, it's like mass rapes. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, most of the soldiers there engage in it. So this is, would be, well, I mean, you start thinking in this, it's like saying that a lot of men have this capacity, and it's not like uh, a very few men that uh, there's something wrong with them. Uh, so this is like, again, doesn't sound very nice, but we just try to understand rather than to make judgments whether it's nice or not or whatever. Right, right. In uh, my opinion, it's not nice. No. But, uh, all right. Yeah, no, and, and there's certainly something about the argument around the circumstances, the environmental factors that can allow some of these things to happen or not. And and wars are a particularly, I think, powerful example of what happens when, say, something like rape becomes not only allowed, but actively encouraged, and everybody is doing it. And right. it's kind of, it becomes part of what you do as part of being part of this collective of people. And if in that, if in that context, anybody can do it that means we all have the capacity to do it you can talk about many other things like that like, oh, like for, slavery for example <laughs> like yeah absolutely and, and not even aggressive things there are a lot of things in sexuality that have nothing to do with aggression like same-sex behavior mm. for example right naturally occurring in in say our um, our world you only have something like less than five percent of people who will identify as we've been talking yeah. in the previous few uh, few episodes who will identify as gay or or uh, same sex attracted but there have been times and and uh historical periods or cultures where same sex behavior was prescribed for everybody that was of certain age or certain class or whatever and so everybody did it mm-hmm. so that means we all kind of have the capacity to do it even if that's not our strong preference. And I think that's important to think about this aggression as well, that just because that was evolutionarily beneficial at some points in in our evolutionary history or for some people in some circumstances, doesn't mean that that is evolutionarily beneficial all the time for everybody in every context. And people will differ, men will differ. I totally agree. And actually, if this is true what I'm saying now, uh, now this, this kind of play probably doesn't have any evolutionary benefit because, right, I mean, uh, here, at least in the Western uh, societies, uh, uh, men do not uh, uh, monopolize women by force, right? So this probably 
irrelevant in terms of reproductive success. However, you still have these desires inside you. So in terms of reproductive success, this might be irrelevant. In terms of sexual satisfaction, however, they are not that irrelevant. It might be relevant yeah. still, of course, of course. And and the other thing that we should note is the individual difference across you know people across men in this in this case, right? With some men just having a high, it's it's a continuum, right? Just like anything else. So some men will be much right. more yes. excited and interested in in this and have the, those tendencies. And maybe those are the men who are descendants of generations of warriors yeah. and uh, other people who have for whom aggression was evolutionarily beneficial. Uh, and for other men, that's much less the case, right? Well, it could be. Actually, there are different mating strategies uh, in the population. So, uh, however, again, uh, explaining individual differences in this dimension as another psychological dimension, I would say it's very tough. I mean, it's hard to, because there are many factors here. So you might ask why some people exhibit. I mean, okay, maybe 70% of men exhibit a preference for this, but what about the other 30%? Is it, is it because they don't have these preferences or these desires or because they are unwilling to admit they have them, even to themselves? Or even if, you know, some of these things take some exposure, perhaps, to fully realize that you have them. <laughs> so maybe they are not still aware that they have them. And some genes, they don't have them. So this, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is tough to explain individual and, and to be fair, probably some of the 70% who are saying they have them, they might not have them. They just might think that that's what a exactly. proper man is supposed to want because that's what they see in porn or that's what their friends are telling Maybe. them or something. Yes. That's true. That's true. Right. Okay. Okay. So let's say that that would be the evolutionary explanation be- behind why men in particular would be into being on the on the giving side of these aggressive and humiliating acts what about on right. the other end of of that of the receiving end why are so many men and as you said your study found and many other studies have found and this is this is something that people often don't realize that the, because there is a gender difference with men being more interested in sort of the dominant side of things than women and women being somewhat somewhat depends uh, more interested in the sub- submissive end of things People don't realize that there are very large groups of men, minority or maybe even majority, which is what your study is finding, uh, of men who want to be on the receiving end of these aggressive and humiliating acts. I I think that's a strength of the study because it's like we examine not only uh, what people want to do on on their partners, but what their partners want to do on them. And as you are very correctly saying, many men indicated that they want these acts to be performed on them. So the question is why? Okay, what I said before makes some sense, I would think, but it doesn't explain why uh, there are so many men uh, that uh, they want these acts to be performed on them by their partner. Why they find this desire, sexual desire? And um, my answer is, uh, I don't know. <laughs> this, this, this is my answer. <laughs> It needs some more theoretical work, I think. <laughs> Probably there should be a reason, because again, it's not like something atypical. It's something very common, at least in my sample, but uh, it needs more theoretical work here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe if you contact me after two or three years, I may have a more solid answer on this one. Well, I think you, you wrote about it a little bit in the paper, actually. If this, this is the case, if indeed in our evolutionary past, 
a lot of the sex that was going on between men and women was to some extent non-consensual. And I, and I would add to that, just to kind of give additional uh, context to some of some of these past experiences, it wasn't just war and women being spoils of war, but very often people were married off to people that they weren't, you know, women in particular exactly. were married Good off point. to people who did, they didn't want to be with because their parents decided that they were going to marry them to, to somebody. And so there are a lot of re- reasons why women may have ended up having sex with, with guys that they weren't really into. And they were not have, their choice. They were not their choice, right? And may have therefore provided some level of resistance to that. And if you had a guy who kind of liked that resistance, like who was turned right. on by that resistance, that it would work better. It yes. would work better for him. That's what I propose, but uh, I think there is more to this. I'm not very satisfied with. It. I think it's part of the explanation Mm -hmm. uh, but i think there is more to this Uh, so yes that's what i propose because then the more someone resists if uh, the more the man stared on then the better this thing is going to work in this context however i feel that there is more to this at least in the theoretical (laughs) part but do you have any thoughts on on what's that more or what's more no no not yet i have to there, there is more work to, to be done in these ones like uh, you see i mean as i mentioned the paper there is not so much theoretical work mm. so far most of the scholars would uh, would see this kind of uh, of sexual play as, uh, as indicating paraphilia that there's something wrong so there was no any theoretical attempt to understand not as a paraphilia but is something that uh, probably, at least in the past, gave some benefit uh, uh, to men and women. So I think there is more uh, work to have uh, yeah. uh, to give you more solid answers. <laughs> yeah, I definitely haven't seen any any work attempting to find evolutionary basis for some of these desires. I agree that some of the work has been has been coming from this kind of pathological perspective of oh you know if people have these desires there must be something wrong there must yeah. be some emotional sexual physical trauma in their lives or they must be using this as a coping mechanism for overcoming something or something like that i've also seen some other attempts at explaining these things that don't have to do with either the deviance model or the evolutionary psychology explanations that uh, revolve around things like sensation seeking and just you know people who are more curious and more exploratory and have higher needs for novelty and sexual exploration they are more likely to be interested in all sorts of kinky things including aggressive and, and humiliating sexual acts and so people have tried to explain that that whole cluster of desires as kind of going along with just a sexually curious personality and someone who is willing to try all sorts of things, including these things. Yeah, my, my, my answer here would be that uh, these things are, uh, I, I can see them sort of like independent in the sense that uh, I even have, let's say, these preferences for aggressive uh, sexual play. Right? That's one independent thing. But now, now the way I express it, how, how I express, how often I, I, I engage in it, this might depend on different factors, right? like my personality, and right? if I'm more into exploring things. So let's say if I'm into, more into exploring things, maybe I'm more likely to act on these preferences. And if you are not so into exploring things, maybe you are less mm-hmm. likely. But it's very different, this one, 
from having these preferences or not. That is, if I, my personality, for instance, I don't think it sort of drives people to do these things unless they sort of have, have them, right? mm. uh, have the desires in the first place. But okay, that's my thinking. Mm. Maybe I don't know. I think I think <laughs> it's, more, we need more research. We definitely need more research. Yeah, and this this would be very difficult to to get to without longitudinal research, where you follow people over time and you know maybe get a sample of people who didn't have or didn't report. I mean, you would you would want to get them young. You would want to get them as teenagers mm -hmm. and then find out what their current kind of thinking is and then how that changes over time and see what factors might be uh, related to those to those changes right. but i can certainly see yeah that the, would be very nice yeah that would be very nice <laughs> yeah good luck with can, can you do you think you can do that in in cyprus uh, it would be pretty hard to do that in the u.s uh, definitely longitudinal studies are by nature quite difficult yeah. to, uh, to but, do but also getting teenagers uh, I can see the obstacles yeah. But also getting teenagers in the U.S. Uh, and getting permission to ask teenagers about whether they want to spit on partners and, you know, get slapped by them. <laughs> that, <laughs> that would be difficult here as well. So. Yeah. Okay, great. We're all in the same boat. Maybe we should ask the, the, the Germans. Like the... We'll yeah. see where this will go. <laughs> Cypriots are just like us, right? <laughs> No, but I, I can I can definitely see the the, the possibility of, of sensation seeking being the driving force even with desires and, and maybe even in the context of exposure, you know, learning about these things existing even if it if they're not kind of innately in your in your blood, whatever, if you want to call it. But then if you're just kind of an exploratory curious person and then you get exposed to these options that might pique your curiosity and be like, oh, that sounds cool yeah. and interesting. Whereas someone who doesn't have that curiosity will see that and be like, nah, not for <laughs> me. No, thanks. Well, the way uh, you describe it, the way I, I, it sounds like it's more like whether I will try something like this mm. rather than uh, where I actually desire something like this. Uh, so for instance, I say, all right, maybe exp I experiment, maybe I do this, maybe I try something else. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I will develop desire for this, or I desire this in the first place. Mm. Uh, you mentioned this before uh, about uh, homosexuality, mm -hmm. and uh, it's something like uh, what happens in prisons, for instance. Right, right. Uh, a lot of men have sex with each other, mm -hmm. although truly they don't desire to have sex with each other. Right. It's just the context. So mm -hmm. when they are released, uh, they never have sex with, uh, with right. other men. Um, so it's a different thing that to have any desire about something, um, and it's different if um, how you act. Uh, that, that's two different things, which are obviously uh, related. Right? Mm. And how about women? Where are women's interest in both being humiliated and humiliating, or being aggressed against and uh, aggressing, mm. all of which, or both of which, in your study were pretty high, pretty prevalent among women. They were slightly less common right. in women than men, but they were still pretty right. damn common in women as well, right? So that's another, I would think, interesting uh, finding here. What we found here, it was also a match, not a perfect match. So there is, a, uh, there is space for conflict. Apparently, many of the uh, desires of men were matched uh, by the desires of women. A lot of men desired an aggressive and humiliating sexual play to perform on part, and a lot of women prefer uh, this kind of play to be performed on them. 
So purely in terms of uh, sexual satisfaction, this can be a win-win uh, situation. <laughs> yeah. So it's not something that someone loses, someone uh, doesn't. But to be fair again, statistically, it appears that men desire uh, this a bit more as than, than women. I mean, we expect this theoretically. So, so if there is this difference, might cause some conflict. So let's say men may desire this more than women are willing to uh, to accept. So that's one fine. Also to mention that we put another question there, asking men and women also. Uh, uh, that, okay, let's say your partner prefers uh, wants something like this. I mean, let's say to hit you or slap you or whatever. A lot of women said irrespectively, but I would say around 70% of women, they would allow at least one of these acts to be performed on them just in order to satisfy their partners. Even if they are is, not into it, right? Exactly. So that's the idea that irrespective of whether you like it or not, about 44% of women said uh, they would allow four uh, of these acts to be performed on them. So I can see here that uh, this is not a one-way thing. Right? It's like men desire something, women desire this as well. So it's like... Uh, it can be a win-win thing. Talk to us a little bit about the evolutionary explanation behind that you're proposing behind why women would desire this in the first place. Why so many women would desire being slapped and hit and humiliated and also would desire doing that to their male partners. Now, I can say about the first bit that said that uh, in general, uh, you know, the sex have co-evolved. So in general, it's like one sex wants, it makes... Uh, sense for the other sex to some degree to accommodate it. So uh, the way I would say it is that uh, if for the reasons I explain, or for any other reason, this is not the issue, uh, uh, men had uh, evolved desires and preferences uh, for aggressive and humiliating sexual uh, play, it would make sense uh, for women to some degree uh, adapt uh, to this. I mean, mm. uh, if at the end of the day, for, because of arranged marriage or forced sex or whatever, uh, you find yourself married with a man uh, who had sex, such desires, it would pay to some degree for you to, uh, to adapt to these desires. So I would think that's part of the explanation. Now, why some women, apart from their partner performing these acts on them, they also want to perform on their partners? Well, I would say possibly one reason is that, again, the coevolution thing. Because many men want these acts to be performed on them. Why many men want these acts to be performed on them? This is something that I need to work on. <laughs> but, but so it, it sounds like in, in your account, all of these women's desires for, for any, any of these kinds of acts tie back to men's desires having evolved. I would, I would start, I mean, I, I, I just put it like in terms, this what evolved first and then the other follow. Uh, that's what I would see. But, but in general, it makes sense to see that the one sex has evolved to adapt to the other. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Of course, there's co-evolution of, of things that, yes, if something is good for one gender, it's, it should be to some extent good for the other if, if we're going to coexist and have relationships that are long-term and have babies and raise those babies together and all that. So you want exactly, you want exactly, there to exactly. be some level of, so, of similarity in, in interests and yeah, desires. It makes sense in this kind of theoretical uh, mm-hmm. perspective. I, I, I can see this a bit much here. So, 
I just have a I have a hard time, you know, wrapping my head around all of our sexual desires that don't involve <laughs> penetration and 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 whatnot. That that somehow comes from the fact that women have been forced to have sex with men for for millennia, and that's how we now all want to do kinky sex on ourselves or on our partners and have it done to them uh, in in all of these scenarios. That it all would stem from. Men uh, raping I would women. Say perhaps, you know, a, a phenomenon as always, it's like complex, and I would think there are many factors there. But what I discuss, I believe that's one important fact. But again, I, 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 I can see what you're saying, because, I mean, if you think in current terms, contemporary societies in, I don't know, downtown New York, <laughs> this sounds weird. However, I mean, if you think in evolutionary terms, you just, um, just read something historical accounts or uh, see how things work, let's say, in pre-industrial societies that uh, anthropologists have studied, then women are treated like, like a commodity sometimes. You know, their, their parents decide, all right, I have a daughter, I give it to him because this uh, is beneficial for me. Mm. And so it's like a commodity. So, I mean, this kind of terms, then uh, what I'm saying makes some more sense. Again, it doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> but I think it makes some sense. The the counter argument to that that uh, many people nowadays would give is that what you're describing is the kind of environment that has only really existed since the advent of agriculture, so something like 10,000 years. And then going back before that in the more hunter-gatherer type societies that uh, women did not have this kind of position and the chances of them being in these kind of forced sexual relationships for one way or another were not nearly as common as afterwards. Right. What do you think about that? Uh, uh, I did uh, extensive studies and uh, in hunting and gathering societies, which probably reflect ancestral uh, human condition mm -hmm. before the agro agricultural evolution, the typical pattern of mating was uh, arranged marriage. So let's say you know, in one study I did, I, I got like 190 contemporary hunting and gathering societies, and in 70% of them, marriages were arranged. I think only in about 5% there were, you know, men and women could choose their own partners. Mm. Also, archaeological evidence indicates, and, 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 and anthropological evidence indicates that, you know, these commons, uh, these were. Fights between men over women were quite common. Now, this became even worse following uh, the agropastoral uh, revolution. Right, right. Yeah, I think, I think everybody kind of has a, I mean, everybody who's been reading a little bit about uh, human history since we have, you know, more, more contemporary data wouldn't argue that the position of women in these societies hasn't exactly been the, uh, the most egalitarian. Exactly. <laughs> And more important, and more importantly, that uh, people have, uh, appear to uh, forget, or not forget, ignore, is that these 10,000 years uh, between the agropastoral uh, revolution and postmodern societies were quite important, had had an impact uh, on, uh, on on us. Even if it, in, in evolutionary terms, is short period, mm. uh, it, uh, it was long enough to have an impact. This is... Obvious. I mean, you can see that, or else, if there was no impact, I mean, everybody 
would look uh, roughly the same. We wouldn't have different races, uh, black, uh, Asians. Uh, right. uh, you see, I mean, there, there was change. There was change following this. And, uh, and even genetic evidence indicated there was a lot of change. Right. So I think all this um, evidence together could explain part of this. Right. Yeah, but so you can understand why evolutionary psychologists and their explanations are not very popular. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to. I can understand 100% this one. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I agree <laughs> that in and of itself does not make it any less true. Uh, but uh, but again, that's why I adopt the evolutionary perspective is to understand not only what's going on, but the nature of things. Why is, is it like this and mm. not uh, the other way? So, okay, you might come with an explanation or a theory that doesn't sound very nice. I can understand this. But again, we just try to understand what's going on yeah, rather yeah. than what we like. To right, be. or what it should be. Or should be, right. right. Yeah. I agree. I Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, uh, <laughs> I often don't like some of these explanations, but uh, I also think that there's a lot of merit. I don't merit, like them too. I don't there's like them. a lot of merit to them. Uh, but I also want to keep thinking and researching, and uh, both theoretically and empirically, see if there are any alternative explanations and, and, and sure, possible. Sure. <laughs> but I think, Joe, we should put Menelaus with Wednesday Martin and in a room oh, and, yeah. and see see who wins that battle. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a party. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we had on the show uh, an author of this new book, uh, Untrue, uh, that kind of argues all against the yes, yeah. the evolutionary psych perspective on on sex differences and all that. And so, it, it, yeah, it, I mean, that's a big argument. That's a big yeah. argument. But for me, I mean, I, the way I see it, it's like for me, uh, evolution is more like kind of a fact. And I'll try to the way I see it is like how. Uh, through evolutionary forces uh, went up big like that rather than whether evolution is relevant or not. I mean, that's how I uh, mm. I approach it. But there are different perspectives, obviously. Right. All right, we're going to have to wrap up here. This is uh, huh? super fascinating. <laughs> and we can okay, stay cool. and talk about it for a really long time. But um, we will have you back on the show uh, at some point to talk about some of the, the other stuff around same-sex sure. attractions sure. And, and fluidity and... That's another area of my expertise, so I'm looking yeah. forward to, uh, and, to talk about and, it. And I would say a little less controversial, uh, probably. Well, okay, same-sex attraction is uh, always controversial. Yeah, Again, depends who you see, ask. Yeah. Uh, I suppose. Some criticism on this paper, yeah. probably it was more controversial. <laughs> right. But all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Menelaos Apostolou, thank you so much for being on the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. You know, Dr. Shana, you know, I mentioned earlier how we're open to emails and uh, <laughs> and, and, and criticism. I have a feeling we might get a couple emails. You think so? About that discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, th these are difficult topics to think about, and some of these evolutionary psychology explanations or theories around human behavior are not nice and pleasant that but that doesn't make them automatically untrue now that said i i, I don't want to just blindly accept every possible you know idea that evolutionary psychologists come up with and many of these are difficult to test yeah because you can go back into evolutionary history once and, somebody builds a time machine then yeah, we could do that exactly and and so it's, there is a lot of speculation but just because on one hand just because it's speculation 
doesn't make it untrue or just because we don't like it doesn't make or it the reverse, untrue. Yeah. But yeah, the reverse is also true. And so I want to be I want to be careful, but in, and cautious in, in how quickly and easily we adopt some of these explanations. But I'm not going to just automatically re- reject them just because they they don't sound right to us. Cool. Well, as we wrap up episode number 48 of the Science X podcast, just a reminder that today's episode brought to you by adamandeve.com. And for a limited time only, you get 50% off just about any item. When you select one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free DVDs plus a free mystery gift. And free shipping on your entire order. And Adam and Eve is the largest online retail store for all sorts of sexy, kinky items from clothes to toys. It's there. Cool. You go to adamandeve.com. Use our code SCIENCE at checkout to get that dealio. Dr. Jana, what do we have lined up for episode number 49 of the Science Sex Podcast? We have a guest in the studio. His name is Dr. Eric Shrimshaw from Columbia University, who's going to talk to us about some of his research on bisexuality. Nice. That sounds like fun. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Jana, once again, happy birthday. Happy birthday to me. Have the best birthday <laughs> <Thank> ever. <laughs> and we will I already s- had. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I could tell by those uh, bags under your eyes. Yeah. It's been, uh, <laughs> it's been quite the birthday. All right. Celebrations. I will see you next week then. See you next week. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.